I wouldn't say that the value investing is dead by any shape of the imagination. I think what you have happening is because they're now supplying so much liquidity into the system, you have a different incentive structure that, that now exists than you used to have when it was just free and open markets and we would let businesses actually fail, which doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. <laughs> and so with that new structure, you're now getting all this incentive to allocate capital into non-tangible assets, really strong, powerful, non-tangible assets, technology-based assets. Think about like Google, for example, like they don't have the CapEx that your traditional brick and mortar type businesses have. They're global. If there are inflationary impacts, they can just immediately adjust. Well, I mean, it's automatic. It's dynamically adjusting the, the bidding of the prices for their ad revenue. Like all those things, the technology piece is just crazy in this. So there's a lot of things that are kind of popping out of this manipulation. For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been a chance to refine my own investment framework through a series of conversations with extraordinary investors in every corner of the world. In this series, I, along with my co-host Robert Carver and Moritz Siebert, want to continue our education by digging deeper into the minds of some of the thought leaders when it comes to how the world economy and global markets really work, to try and learn how they think. We want to understand the experiences that have shaped them, the processes they follow, and the historical events that have influenced them. We also want to ask questions outside our normal rules-based playground. We're not looking for trade ideas or random guesses about an unknown future, but rather knowledge accumulated over the course of decades in the markets to try and make us better informed investors. And we want to share those conversations with you. Our guest today is a super successful podcaster and a diehard value investor who have also embraced our side of the momentum-driven investment space. So you are really in for a treat today. So please enjoy our conversation with Preston Pish. Preston, thanks so much for joining us today for a conversation as part of our mini-series Into the World of Global Macro, where we relax our usual systematic or rules-based framework to provide you with a broader context as to where we are in a global and historical framework, and perhaps discover some of the trends that may occur in the global markets in the next few months or even years, and ultimately how this will impact all of us as investors and how we should best prepare our portfolios. So we are really super excited to dive into a few different topics in the next hour or so, not least because you have a different background to most of our other guests and since you and your co-host Deke run a highly successful podcast, namely the Investors Podcast, and where you not only express your own opinions, but like us, also get to speak to some of the most brilliant thinkers we can come across in this world when it comes to the economy and to the markets, which of course helps us become more informed investors. But before I jump into kind of the usual questions we have, I do have one specific one for you that I wanted to just get into. And that is, my understanding is that you kind of started out as a quote-unquote diehard value investor, but you have since expanded on how you look at markets. So without spoiling the story, can you tell a little bit about this evolution and why you perhaps look at investing differently to where you started? I love the question because 
I don't even know that I've ever been asked that. I, I see a lot of people on Twitter ask me from time to time and just like short snippets, but the evolution for me kind of came from a little bit of pain of the value investing strategy just underperforming over the last five or six years in general. And I think some of it too came from just the 2008, 2009 experience coming out of that event. I had the opinion that it was never remedied. Like there was never a solution that was actually put in place. In fact, when I saw QE being used, I was thinking to myself, okay, well, how long are they going to do that? And and I guess I, I operate off this really fundamental thesis of manipulation. Anytime somebody steps into a freely functioning system, like, like nature, for example, when man steps into nature and they start manipulating that, there's always a consequence of some sort that, that has to balance that manipulation out. And so whenever I look at open markets, I view them very much like the way nature operates. And when I saw not just in the U.S. with central banking policy, but globally, all the central bankers having this coordinated effort to use quantitative easing and manipulating the bond market, which then manipulates all the that falls out into all these other markets. When I was watching that happen in 2010, 2011, 12, 13, and it just kept going. I was telling myself, all right, well, I better start understanding macro because if I don't, like this is going to be a very, very painful event because nothing has been fixed. It's just like you're putting a bigger and bigger band-aid on a wound of the body that's just leaking more and more blood. So that's kind of where I was approaching it from was I, I always was very skeptical as to what was taking place since 2008, 2009, that we weren't dealing with free and open markets. And so then it was just like, well, who can I read? Who's the smartest person in the world on this subject? Well, Ray Dalio kind of emerged as, as one of those people. And then from his readings popped out other books and other people that I started studying. And then for me, it became kind of a, I actually started really enjoying it a lot because it was very complex to try to understand. And I wouldn't say that the value investing is dead by any shape of the imagination. I think what you have happening is because they're now supplying so much liquidity into the system, you have a different incentive structure that, that now exists than you used to have when it was just free and open markets and we would let businesses actually fail, which doesn't seem to be a thing anymore. <laughs> and so with that new structure, you're now getting all this incentive to allocate capital into non-tangible assets, really strong, powerful, non-tangible assets, technology-based assets. Because I, I think about like Google, for example, like they don't have the CapEx that your traditional brick and mortar type businesses have. They're global. If there are inflationary impacts, they can just immediately adjust. Well, I mean, it's automatic. It's dynamically adjusting the, the, the bidding of the prices for their ad revenue. Like all those things, the technology piece is just crazy in this. So there's a lot of things that are kind of popping out of this manipulation. But I would, if I was going to explain it for a person who might not understand financial markets real well, the way I would explain it is if you went in and you put a nuclear reactor into this natural environment and it's kind of popping out like 
this bio waste, right? That environment is going to naturally adapt to it in some way, and it's going to try to cleanse itself of that. And I think that's probably the best way I can describe what's happening with central banking policy right now is they're they're doing aggressive quantitative easing. Some of them are starting to do UBI, and you're getting all these weird kind of effects that are happening in the market right now. Yeah, and we'll definitely get into all of that. But what I also think what's interesting about that journey where you could say, okay, I start with value, but actually right now, maybe I believe that momentum will be the better place to be. Mm-hmm. We come from the momentum side. I mean, trend following certainly could be described as as momentum. And what I find really interesting is that I think there's a great complement in the two, right? Because if you think about a lifetime of a, of a trade, and in this case, let's just take a long trade, value investors will be having most of the benefit early on in the trade because you're going to be looking for that deep, deep value, which trend follows. I mean, we're definitely going to be short at that time. So we won't enjoy anything until the markets have changed, et cetera, et cetera. But then I guess on the other side, without being an expert in value, that at some point it gets too expensive. Value investors will get out. But then the trend followers are stupid enough to just stay with the trade or the trend for as long as it goes. And as we know, sometimes markets can go to extremes. And yeah. so the combination of the two and the fact that you've embraced both, I think, is is just fantastic. But um, let me jump back to what we tend to start out in this series in terms of questioning. And that is just to get your picture of the world right now. Where do you see? Because a lot of people compare this to what's happened in the past. And of course, you mentioned Ray Dalio. He's one of them. Um, But there are other crises that we go back and compare to. But just from a sort of a clean sheet of paper, where do you see the world right now? In chaos. You know, I when I'm when I'm thinking about how this is going to continue to play out, central bankers have to print. They have to and this is all becoming a story of the dollar in my humble opinion. I think the globally this is all coming down to the dollar and I think it's all coming down to the failure of the dollar. How long that's going to take place, I really don't know. I do think that we're now getting into an aggressive competition of monetary policy. Okay, so we just saw the we just saw the United States step in, do aggressive printing. I think it was three or four trillion, right? So when when they print that much, now all the other countries and all the other currencies are feeling the effects of that, and they have to counter it with more printing on their side. And so now that's what we're seeing over in Europe and all over the world. Well, when they counter that with more aggressive printing, what does that do to the dollar? Well, relatively speaking, it makes the dollar stronger. And so now what does the U.S. have to do? They have to step in and they have to print again. And so you're getting into this phase where that, was, that wasn't that was nearly as strong as what we're seeing today. And I think now that you have COVID, you have all these protesters on the streets, which is no doubt Uh, causing implications to businesses and their ability to capture revenues whenever you got protesters on the streets, like all just in the the, the major cities itself, you got changes in major buying habits. I think that that trend where the COVID isn't gone, it keeps coming back, is going to wreak havoc come the third quarter, fourth quarter of 2020 for these businesses. And so it just is going to cause more printing. It's going to cause more universal basic income checks, which causes more devaluation of the dollar, which then goes back into the international front, and then they have to reprint. So I think you're in this do loop of printing 
competitive printing and what that means for the the market capitalization of equities i think what you're going to see is these violent rips in both directions so we saw at the start of 2020 i mean the market was just peaking out we went through a, a massive reevaluation of supply and demand and what business implications that was going to have and the fed responded in force bid the market right the market caps of these companies or at least the top few that actually drive the indexes back up and now i think you might be able you might be starting to see the next rip down right now it's going to be yet to be seen but i kind of suspect that you're going to see another drop a significant drop a violent drop only to see central bankers step in and double down on their printing like whatever they did last time they're just going to do double that and then you're going to go through that whole cycle over again and so in in nominal terms i think you're going to see the market go sideways i wouldn't even be surprised if you see the market go up which i think very few people are saying in nominal terms but in real terms if you're going to measure it in gold you're going to measure it in bitcoin you're going to measure it in something that has like a fixed supply to it you're going to see it go down and you you're already seeing that in 2020 the market's down if you're measuring it measuring it in gold or bitcoin it's down by like 15 to 20 percent it's down and so that's that's a part that if i was going to say the one thing that i think most investors are missing today i think it's that i think they're doing their measuring with nominal fiat dollars and they're not measuring it in real terms off of a fixed commodity or whatever people want to call bitcoin and gold what's on your mind rob this morning yeah it's really interesting because i i remember um standing in front of a of a seminar in about 2011 and, and saying you know what's going to happen from here is is going to be a, a competitive race to the bottom in terms of interest rates because devaluing your currency is, is a cheap and easy fix to your problems doesn't really help of course everybody it's, it's a kind of classic prisoner's dilemma you all end up in the same mm -hmm. boat so it's it's really fascinating that everyone lowered everyone did that and then of course printed money and you know it's just it's it, you know it's hard to see an end game for that so you talked a bit about about equities and you talked a bit about gold and bitcoin i'm sure we'll get onto those later as well but what about the you know the, the market that's sort of directly affected by this government intervention so the fixed income market and the bond market and obviously We've got U.S. 10 years at sub-70 basis points, which I'm pretty sure is a historic low. And I remember back at this seminar, people saying that U.S. 10 years could never go below 3%. So that, that was a, a, poor, a poor forecast. We crushed those numbers. We certainly did, yeah. And I just said, well, look at Japan. There we go. Yeah. So, so how, do you, how do you see that, the, you know, the yield curves evolving, both in terms of the steepness, but also relative across countries and... and um, you know, just your thoughts on, on the fixed income market generally, really. So, you know, you, you hear, you're, you read in the news and they say, well, we're going to do this yield curve control, right? And anybody who works in finance knows exactly what that means. But for the rest of the public, which is, you know, more than 95% of people out there, they hear, oh, they're going to do yield curve control and everything's going to be perfectly fine. But what they're really saying is we're going to look at the, the notes, the bonds, the you know we're we're going to look at the whole yield curve from short duration clear out to the thirty year, and we might even start adding some fifty and maybe hundred years into the mix, right? 
And if anybody steps in and tries to sell it, we're going to step in and we're going to buy it with freshly printed cash and hold the, the, the yield at an exact number. That's all it is. But they'll, they'll call it all these fancy things that confuses the public so that they don't understand the farce that we're living in. And that's what it is. It's a total farce. I think what they're going to do, they have to keep the yield curve in the U.S. specifically. They've got to keep the yield curve in a positive slope because you, of all people, Rob, know what that damage does if the yield curve starts to invert for managing the liquidity on a bank's balance sheet. It's, it just doesn't work. And you go back in history and you look at any time the bond yield curve is inverted, well, we get in these liquidity events real quickly. So I think from the central banker, you know, if I'm if I'm uh, Powell at the at the Fed, he's drawn out just a really mildly sloping but positively sloping yield curve. You know, the 30 year might be one percent, and then he's taking it clear down to zero for the the overnight rates and they're absolutely trying to control that by anybody who's stepping in and selling beyond that yield, they're going to step in and buy it so that they can keep it pegged at that yield. And so now the question becomes, how long can they sustain that before everyone starts saying there, there is some funky stuff going on here and they, they don't buy it anymore? Because one of the most common questions I get asked from people is, how does the bond market break? Like, how does it explode? How long can they do this? Right. And I really think that it's going to come down to when people start to realize that they can take these massive trillion dollar tranches of bonds and invest it somewhere else and get a better return, like a lot better return. You're going to start to see, it'll start off as a trickle that starts coming out of that market, but then it's just going to, it's going to be the biggest explosion you could potentially see something that like that with Bitcoin, which I think is really controversial for most people in finance to hear that. But if you would, if, if Bitcoin starts, I'm just going to use this in a, as an example, let's say Bitcoin starts to run and all your trend followers are going to pick this up real quick, right? They're going to see the price go through 10,000, 11,000, then it's going to be off to the races at that point because it's going to break a technical barrier. If that starts to happen and, and people are looking at the amount of printing that's happening around the world, like we're in this competitive printing phase and people are saying, well, that's supposedly sound money. I don't know how it operates. I don't understand this whole protocol stuff, but it's been around for over 10 years and, and for some reason they can't kill it. And now it's price is running. And just think if even a slither, like 0.01% of the bond market starts starts funneling money into something like that. I, I just can't imagine how they're going to be able to contain it. So that's one of my concerns for the bond market moving forward is they're going to be trying to do this yield con control. They're going to have a buyer try, like trying to control the, the yield curve in the Fed. They're, they're the buyer of last resort. They're going to buy everything. So if I know I have a buyer at that price, no matter what, like I don't have nominal risk, but I, I definitely have real risk if I continue to stay in there. And... I think that you're going to see, I mean, come on, you got Paul Tudor Jones buying Bitcoin now. So like, what's, what does he know that no one else knows? So who's the next Paul Tudor Jones? Who's the next major financier that's going to step in and say, Hey, you know, well, let me buy some chump insurance and just have this 0.01 exposure to Bitcoin now that it's running past the previous all-time high of 20,000. Then it's just going to get really interesting. And I think that if I was going to describe how the bond market blows up, 
I think there's one one example of maybe many where you could say I could see a lot of people leaving the bond market for something like that, and then it gets aggressive and it just compounds on itself from there. Yeah, it seems appropriate now to introduce a, a major financial figure who has been buying Bitcoin, and we were talking about it before the podcast. Moritz, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, uh, Preston, very cool to have you on the show, and uh, pretty keen to speak about Bitcoin in a bit, because I'm not sure about Rob and Niels, but, but certainly I'm in, in your uh, bullish camp. But before, before I do that, you know, this yield curve control, I know it's come up quite a few times. And um, I'm struggling a bit with what are they actually going to control because the yield curve is pretty flat already, right? And I'm just <laughs> I'm just saying personally, if you know, say we're at one percent, right? I mean, whatever, right? I mean, if the impact is that they're reducing that by 25 bips or it goes up by 25 bips or something like that, it doesn't matter to me in the slightest. It's not impacting any of my purchasing decisions. It's not impacting any of my financials. It's just too little, too late, right? Whereas if they had a yield curve, say, at 18%, go back to the Volcker times, right? And they did yield curve control then and go like, oh, yeah, we're doing something in the 5% range, right? And we're really, you know, sh shifting this down. Then, yeah, I mean, 5%, that, you know, moves the needle. But we're kind of like at, at zero. I mean, what, what, are you, what are you actually controlling? But I do agree with you that at some point, there may be a shift in sentiment that gets all those pension funds and everybody that's long bonds, structurally long bonds, right? Looking at not the nominal yield that they're getting, which in some cases is negative anyways, as you know, but at the real yield that they're getting, right? So it's interest-free risk. I, that's essentially what it is, right? And then you go, well, how about I replace a little bit of that with gold? Because gold doesn't pay me a coupon, it doesn't pay me interest, right? But yeah, it may have some risk, but maybe the risk is to the upside as opposed to the downside in that environment. And how I put, how about I put a little bit of that thing in Bitcoin or how about I buy stocks, right? And at that point, it's very difficult to control the bond market because like you say, the Fed would then have to come in and just guzzle everything up and then, then they own the bond market. And I guess that's probably... I'm, I don't want to say probably, but it could be one of the end games where it's like, you know, you own all the bonds. We don't want any of your bonds. It doesn't matter where you price them. We're just going into physical assets, be that equities or gold or whatever. Right? If you're telling me that this is going to be the yield that you're going to peg it at for the 15 year, right? As an investor, what incentive do I have to then not have that bid any higher? And, and remember, I'm coming off of a 30... 40-year high of it always being bid higher. So if if I'm a bond investor and I just made money since 1981 from falling asleep and it just keeps going up, right? Because that's what's happened. So the bond market has gone up on the long end. Or pretty Every single duration, it's gone up for that many years since 1981, at least here in the U.S. So now you're telling me that it's not going to do that anymore and it's just going to stay fixed? Like like I pegged it to the wall. Why would I own that? Especially if the if the coupons half a percent or fifty basis points or whatever. Like I'm not owning that. What's really fascinating is value investing. In my humble opinion, is hands down the best way to invest if you're dealing with sound money. Okay, but guess what? We're not. So when you're doing value investing, it all comes down to what is the internal rate of return that I'm calculating based on what my projection of the future free cash flows are, right? 
And so I do that. I go in there. I look at the company's previous free cash flows. I'm, I'm trying to come up with an estimate of what I think the future free cash flows are going to look like. And then I just look at the market price because it's a given. It's not an unknown like every business school likes to try to treat it. You know what it is, at least in the public markets you do. And then I figure out my internal rate of return. And when I'm doing that, I'm coming up with various yields, which are very close to where all these fixed income yields are pointing, but there are some that are at 10%. And so I'm coming up with a yield and I'm saying, oh, this is 9% or this is 7%. It would be the juicy ones in the market right now. Well, what are you comparing that to? You have to compare it to a ruler like we did whenever there was sound money. And so right now the ruler is half a percent, right? Or at least they, they want you to think it's a half a percent. And so in that type of scenario where you're saying my ruler is a half a percent and I just got 7% on this IRR calculation for company XYZ, well, I should own company XYZ. Here's where the, the farce is happening. Your ruler is not a half a percent because if you go back and you look at the central banker's balance sheets and you look at the, the rate, if you did a kegger on the annual rate of return or if you did a, if you annualized how much they've expanded their balance sheets, right? You're in excess of seven or 8%. If you were using that, that is your ruler now. And I think that's how people should be looking at the markets. I think they should be looking at the, at the central banker balance sheets and saying, how much are they expanding this on an annualized basis for the last 10 years? Because that is the debasement rate. And whether the Fed is allowing the bond market to happen naturally or not doesn't matter because your debasement rate is, the, is, is, your, is your hurdle that you've got to overcome if you're going to outpace it, Right. So for me, when I'm looking at how much of a return I've got to get on a company at a minimum, it's what's the debasement rate and what do I got to do to clear it? And right now it's sky high compared to what the fixed income market's saying because the fixed income market is completely manipulated. And I think I went off on a little bit of a tangent there from your point about the yield control, but Dude, I, I'm looking at this and just kind of shaking my head and, and saying, how are so many people on Wall Street still treating this like we're living in a free and open market? Because we're not. Some of them must. Sorry to just real quick. You know, I think some of those pension funds and, you know, the regulations that surround them, they have no choice. They're kind of like yeah. prisoners in that market, right? Yeah, so there's right. a new bond issuing coming up. Well, let's buy that because we have to. No, you're you're exactly right, Moritz. It, all the statutes that are in place are forcing these banks to act the way that they are acting because there's nobody with half a brain that would be acting this way. So the, the banks are turning into an extension of the state at this point globally. You're seeing it all over the place. That's the only way they can keep this going at, at the way that they're doing it. It's, it's nuts. You, we can now see the, you know, the pattern, right? The, the regulation changes we've had in the last five, 10 years, they kind of help to get to the point where they can actually control these things. But then we have to add one more thing, which is not so much of a U.S. problem, but it's a big problem in Japan. It's a major problem in Europe. And that is the free float of bonds is tiny. I mean, a couple of years ago, the ECB was owning more than 80% of the German government bonds. I mean, today it might be 90%. Who knows? So what bonds are they going to sell back? How are they going to, you know, how, how, how are yields going to go up? Because who's got anything to sell? Yeah, they, they can't issue the debt fast enough at this point. Right. <laughs> and that's the other thing is is you got 
You got people that aren't from finance saying, oh my God, these governments got to slow down their spending. Meanwhile, the central banks are saying, you need to speed up your spending. And it's just so counterintuitive. And, and you look back at history and you see these events where hyperinflation happens. And you just think to yourself, how in the world could they, I, I remember thinking this 10, 20 years ago, right? Where like, how in the world could they possibly have been that dumb? Or how, how could they have done that? But when you're living through it, and I definitely believe we're living through that type of event, you can see how, how all the incentives are pointing in the wrong direction, but you have to keep moving in that direction for one reason. And it's to prevent the social unrest from happening in society, that it's the choice of the lesser of evils that, well, if we keep doing this, at least we'll prevent people from getting chaotic in the streets. And so let's just keep going down this path of, of least resistance that has the least amount of pain because there's no way we could step in and stop the momentum of this massive fiscal event that's happening right now. Because if you do, it's going to be worse than what we're already seeing. So it's, it's kind of crazy times, man. This is, it's wild. Rob, you had a point. Yeah, it was just sort of sprung to my mind. I can follow your logic as to why the sort of hurdle rate for value investments or investments generally should be higher because of this kind of hidden hidden risk, um, or maybe not so hidden, but you know, not not there in the price. But I don't see how that would affect kind of relative valuations. I can understand how it would affect absolute valuations. So you could say, well, actually, the market is is much richer than you think it is. I mean, the S and P is pretty rich already, in my opinion. But that wouldn't affect necessarily the fact that certain companies are still cheaper than others, right? Or are you basically then saying that the kind of pool of cheap companies is so small, you're kind of like Warren Buffett in whenever it was, 68, who sort of gave up for a few years and said, you know what, this market is crazy. I, I can't see any opportunities out there because of this effective, really high discount rate that you should be using. So I guess the, the way I would look at it is going back to one of the comments I made earlier where I was saying that gold and Bitcoin are outperforming the market, the S&P 500. And if you measure the S&P 500 in Bitcoin, it's down. I, I don't know what it is today, but I would imagine it's around 20 to 25% down from the start of the year. And same with gold, it'd probably be 15% down since the start of the year. So when I'm saying that hurdle rate of call it 7 or 8% or a debasement rate of 7 or 8%, I think you have to select an equity that would outperform that 7 or 8% hurdle rate to outperform the S&P 500 is kind of my opinion. If you picked something that was under that amount, I think it's going to underperform gold and Bitcoin is how I would look at it. And to be quite honest with you, I don't know how anything's going to outperform Bitcoin based on my opinions of how I think it's going to perform in the coming, in the coming year and a half. I don't know how anything can outperform that simply because the market cap's so low. With gold, you got a mature market cap and so as the as these central banks go into printing, you're going to see it just go straight into that in real terms. Uh, if you're comparing it in, in terms there, it, you're going to see gold just perform at that debasement rate. I think Bitcoin, because it's only got a market cap of call it 200 billion, it's got room to expand into that store of value, that global store of value. And I think that's where a lot of the upside in Bitcoin is going to come from. So I'm looking at that. I, I, if I had to go back and rephrase what I had originally said there, I would say that the hurdle rate 
of seven or eight percent or whatever it is is probably a, a benchmark compared to gold, not necessarily Bitcoin. Before we leave interest rates and all of that uh, good stuff and move on to other things, of course, and I'm sure this might come up later on as well. I mean, we talk about what can drive yields higher. Well, one thing that could drive yields higher is, of course, surprise inflation. And people forget, because this is something I picked up from one of your recent conversations, Preston, will with Grant Williams when he said that, you know, from 1915 to 1917, inflation went up. This is CPI numbers, by the way, from 1% to 20%. From 1945 to 1947, it went from 1% to 19%. And from 72 to 1974, from 3 to 12%. And we just don't, can't even imagine that that could happen now. But anything, I think the last few months have shown us that anything can happen and we should prepare for that. Speaking about anything can happen, and I, this will shift something, and I, I, I'm sure um, uh, Rob and, and Moritz will bring it back to something um, closer to home, but given your background, you know, the U.S. have had a trade war with, with China. We know that geopolit- you know, politics is, is pretty interesting at the moment, but I was wondering just out of curiosity, I mean, do you even think or worry about the prospect of a hot war involving U.S., China, or one of the other superpowers? Is that a real possibility? And also because there is this war cycle that uh, people, uh, some people know about, which is about 100 years, and we're coming up to that. And of course, we did see something come out of the White House also that Grant Williams brought up uh, in one of your conversations, which when you read it, it really does, and this is from May of, of this year, it really sounds like a de facto war declaration against China. So given your background, I was just curious whether this is something that you have in your realm of possibilities? I definitely think it's in the realm of possibilities. Ray Dalio has mentioned this many a times that at the end of these type of super cycles, Mm -hmm. debt cycles, armed conflict is sometimes one of the most common outcomes because of the social unrest and everyone's pointing their finger at pretty much everybody else but themselves. And it turns into physical remedies right like you 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 can't you can't solve these through policy so then it just turns into a a physical solution so i think it's a a major concern now whether china and the u.s want to go toe-to-toe i think both sides understand the implications of what would come out of that and it would be insanely bloody and so i think that there's an incentive for both sides to not get themselves into that type of situation because in the end i don't think anybody comes out a winner especially with the the weapons and, and munitions that are in the technology that exists today. So it's it's something that I think is possible. It's not something that I've built into any type of financial models. I, I don't think we're anywhere close to that today. But those are th- those are events that can escalate in a month and just happen right. out of nowhere. So could it happen? Absolutely. Is it something I'm I'm thinking about today? Not really, but the trend is not a pretty trend at all. The trend is not one that that I wish would continue going the direction that it's going. Sure. Uh, wow, pretty depressing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry. On a Monday morning. Sticking with the kind of big secular trend sort of theme, but a slightly less scary prospect, or maybe not, I don't know. How do you feel about the way sort of demographic change could potentially affect the market? So obviously, 
I guess we're pretty much halfway through the baby boomers sort of retiring. And there's, there's more stuff to play out there. Obviously, the Chinese population has undergone structural change because of the one-child policy. Now, potentially, they're moving into a situation where their population could be aging quite quickly. How do you see that all kind of feeding in and, and on the markets in terms of the flows of money that, that these retirements will generate? It's interesting to see how as these debt cycles, these super cycles that we're talking about that are 80 to 100 years long, at the end of these, things start getting expensive. For I, I would argue that the reason most people don't have four kids or five kids is because it'd be insanely expensive to have four kids or five kids. Yeah, I've got three and that's enough. Thank you. It is. It's, it's a lot, especially in today's day and age. I would argue most families only have two kids, and even that's a struggle anymore. Where you went back into the 1940s, 1950s, you could have bigger families because, relatively speaking, you were making more money. The capital was being pushed down into the entire population. It wasn't nesting itself into only a small percentage, 1%. So in a fascinating way, you see these demographic issues come up for all of these cycles at the end of these cycles because of that dynamic of the cost and how the 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 capital isn't working itself into the population and i i kind of suspect that that's one of the driving factors is just i think people would have more kids if they could afford to have more kids and so it, will that trend get stronger i think that trend's only going to get stronger as you continue to see this contillion effect continue to play out which is not advantageous to the whole situation. It only compounds on the situation, making it worse. So uh, before we get into this Bitcoin discussion, which I'm sure Rob and Niels will like, <laughs> the impression that I get is because you've, you've mentioned Bitcoin and gold, and you know, I, I guess you're, you're long both of those, or at least Bitcoin, I think you are. Yeah. So you, your view is probably an inflationary future for markets, whenever that will come. Probably difficult to say whether that's happening in the next six or in the next 60 months. Uh, I wouldn't be able to say that. But I think what, what I've mentioned a couple of times also on this podcast is in terms of Bitcoin, even if you're an institutional investor, I think, be it institutional or private, I think it's a greater risk, more of a risk to not be exposed to Bitcoin on the long side than being exposed. And why do I say that? It's because inherently asymmetrical that position, right? I mean, let's say the downside is zero. Probably very difficult for Bitcoin to get to zero because even if a government came in and declared it illegal, you can't turn off the internet. There's going to be some tribe that will use Bitcoin and it will have, you know, some price, maybe very low, but probably not zero. But who defines the upside of that market? What is the price target for Bitcoin? I mean, yeah, of course, stock to flow model, plan B, all of that type of stuff. Uh, you can use that as a guidance. But honestly, I think nobody knows, right? So it's probably a good thing to be a little bit long. And if you're interested, Preston, I, I just yesterday night put out an article on twoquants.com about the Bitcoin market and the high implied funding rate that's implied in Bitcoin futures contracts trading on the CME and backed. I'm not sure if you're following that, but this is one of the discussions that yeah. I had before you came on with, with Robin Niels and saying like, you know, you have all those insured custody solutions for an institutional investor who kind of like is afraid of being long spot Bitcoin because they're afraid of losing their key or losing the coin, right? I mean, yeah, you can pay for that and, and kind of like be on the safe side. So coming back to the bond market, here's a bond market where you essentially earn nothing, right? You have interest-free interest risk. 
And here's a market that is 200 billion, give or take, right? Uh, but it allows you to do a trade where you can be long spot Bitcoin and you sell a futures contract against it. And you're kind of like looking at making 10% a year. Yep. So how about that? Well, why don't we do that? How about those apples? <laughs> exactly. There's, there's so few people that understand that derivative trade that you're talking about. And what a whopper. What a whopper of a trade that's a slam dunk win. I just don't understand why more people in finance aren't on it. Yep, I agree. And I think as as you go through the coming year, the amount of people that are going to pile into that and narrow that, they have to show up because <laughs> it's, it's a slam dunk win right now. And I mean, you talk about a massive guaranteed return. It's, it's, it's wild. Yeah, it requires that you have some liquidity and excess cash because, you know, the margin requirements on those futures contracts are fairly high and Bitcoin could jump up, say, 5x overnight, right? And, and, and the variation margin that you need to come up with in order to stay in the trade is, is significant. And I guess there's also a lot of pressure on the long side for futures contracts, at least this is a hunch that I have that I put out in the article is those institutions, you've mentioned Paul Tudor Jones, right? Maybe he's doing the spot Bitcoin. I'm not sure. He didn't tell us what exactly he did, right? But I guess some institutions, they go, yeah, I go yeah. to the CME because I'm trading E-minis and I'm trading futures contracts. So it's a futures contract. I face the clearinghouse. That's fine, right? So I'm, I'm just buying Bitcoin futures and that's a better trade than buying spot Bitcoin. And obviously then that makes the market one-sided and the futures, you know, the futures basis goes up. So I guess it's probably one of the reasons why that trade is, like you say, a whopper trade. So here's the thing that, that fascinates me on this one. So the derivatives market that I participate in for, for Bitcoin requires 100% equity of the coin to put on the position. If you're going to sell a call on the exchange that I'm using, you have to come up with a full Bitcoin in order to write that contract, right? So now think about what that does as you sell a call for a year and a half or a year, because there's long dated derivatives out there. Think about what that does as they lock up one Bitcoin into escrow for an entire year. That coin's now off the market. Less Bitcoin. You got it. And if there's a spread where people can capture a 10% by buying long and selling short at the same time, guess what? You've just created a massive incentive to lock up a whole bunch of Bitcoin for a long period of time all around the world in a global market. Here's the other point that I think is really important for people to think about. Not only that, but they started off as being cash settled. But why? Why would I participate in a cash settled market when I can take physical delivery of a Bitcoin in literally a millisecond? I can take physical delivery right here in my house now. <laughs> what other market have you ever seen in history that you can do something like that where you can take physical possession? Now you remove the whole piece where cash settled derivatives can be a manipulated game like you see in potentially gold. I mean, that always comes up. Anything that's difficult to settle uh, physical delivery of, well, they always lean towards these cash settled markets, which I mean, it's equivalent to playing a game of poker and I'm holding all the chips and I can control the participants in the game. Well, you can't do that with Bitcoin because I can take physical delivery right now. And I think because of the nature of Bitcoin being the security piece of it with the private keys and managing the private keys, 
people are not going to, I am not going to enter into a contract. Like if I'm going to buy a long call on Bitcoin and you say, ah, I'm just going to put up 0.2 Bitcoins instead of the full Bitcoin for the contract. Guess what? I'm not participating in that market if I'm buying the call side. I demand, as a buyer of a call, I demand 100% escrow sitting in that account because I understand the implications that you have to produce this. And the only way you can produce it is if you have the private keys. So if I don't see those sitting in escrow, I'm not buying that, that call. I won't do it. And I think everybody else in the market thinks the same way. So you finally got into a situation in financial markets where people are demanding sound money. They are not going to settle for anything less than that. You've got these swaps that are massive, and they're massive because the volatility on it is obscene, and that, that makes sense. They should be priced that way. But if you got a spread where you can make 10% right now on, by buying long and, and selling short, well, I don't know how you're going to be able to fend off all the Wall Street types from making a guaranteed 10%. You're not going to do it. But at least you're not going to do it for long. But, boy, it's, it's an exciting time. I'm kind of curious what reservations, Niels, Rob, what, what reservations do you have? Because I would love to, to field whatever those questions are. Oh, no, I mean, I, I, I hate to spoil this Bitcoin party, but I will just remind uh, at least Moritz and Rob of one thing, and that's from uh, one of the guests, which the, the episode is not published yet. But Julian Brickton came on, uh, and we had a good chat with him. And he just said that one of his worries was that one day authorities would go in and, and, and confiscate anyone uh, who had Bitcoins and that you could end up, as and I'm trying to quote him as accurately as I can, in, in a big hole with a boy called Baba who calls you Shirley. <laughs> one of the reasons I'm so active on Twitter is because for five years I've been duking it out. And I mean, we've been in fist fights, virtual fist fights with people on Twitter for five years about questions like that. I can't even tell you how many threads I've been involved in over that topic right there. In fact, we did a whole podcast episode with a person who used to work in finance, got a law background, and she's uh, heading the cryptocurrency task force for the state of Wyoming. And she's like, from everything I'm seeing, I'm seeing the exact opposite from a legislature standpoint where they're trying to make it more accessible. Because what I think you're going to get into, the same thing that we were talking about earlier on the show, where you have competitive devaluation happening amongst nations of, of central banks. What I think you're going to start seeing, in my humble opinion, is you're going to see competitive, a competitive race to see how much Bitcoin and cryptocurrency nations can suck into their country opposed to prevent it from coming into their country because they're going to see it's like BitTorrent. You can't shut it down. If you can't shut it down and there's other countries that are, that are capturing it. Now you get into a tragedy of the commons type situation where it's competitive. How can I come up with laws that actually don't have high capital gains so we can suck that business and suck those coins into this country? And I think that's a really counterintuitive thought that very few people in traditional finance are saying, but I see as the more likely outcome just because of the game theory. And if I was going to say to, to the gentleman who said that, how are you going to possibly get the private key? So like, let me give you an example. If someone came knocking on my door and said, Preston, we want your Bitcoins. And dude, I'm sorry. I lost them yesterday. I lost them yesterday. I don't, I don't know what the private keys are anymore. 
How are you possibly going to take that person's coins? It's impossible. It's literally impossible. Are you going to physically beat the person to get them? I mean, that, that could maybe be a solution, but that's pretty much the only way you could potentially convince the person to give you their private keys. So it's a little different than gold in that regards. I mean, on a serious note, you to answer your question about you know, so reservations, and to some extent, I would say um, I don't have reservation in the sense that I think it's perfectly possible that Bitcoin can fly from here and it's mm -hmm. going to be fantastic. Okay, so that's one thing. There's a couple of things that worries me a little bit. One is a lot of people right now say gold is a sure thing, Bitcoin is a sure thing. When everybody comes out saying it's a sure thing, especially what we see right now, it worries me yeah. because nothing is. Secondly, we've just had the biggest crisis potentially that we've seen in our lifetime. What happened? Bitcoin sold off, gold sold off. So nothing is sure. And it doesn't change what you're saying at all, but it's just something to be aware of. And again, I don't know much about Bitcoin anyways, but for what it's worth, I would say, I think China in within the last month confiscated accounts, Bitcoin accounts. And of course, what are the central banks going to do? I mean, digital currency as a concept, I, I definitely believe will come. I actually think that what we've seen in the last 10, 12 years with negative interest rates in many countries, it has destroyed the banking system. And I can see that we're all going to end up becoming clients of central banks because it's all going to be digital and we don't need the banks in, the, in between. And it's much easier for them to control everything. I can see that for sure. But then what happens to all the other digital currencies when that happens? I don't know. So if I was talking from a trend following perspective, the only reason I think a lot of trend followers, I know Moritz already uses it, but it's fine. But for a firm like ours, we think it's interesting yeah, because of the way it behaves and the uncorrelated nature. But it's just not liquid enough for us to trade as a firm, at least not in our opinion, compared to other opportunities. But yeah, no, I find it very interesting for sure. I, I love your point about nothing's a guarantee. And anytime somebody says this is going to happen, it's pretty much the best time to run away from them. <laughs> <laughs> so I share your sentiment and, and having been in markets for an, enough years now, I'm with you hundred percent. I think that that is something that people should definitely be concerned about that. There's so many people saying this is going to be a big thing. And if anything, it'll cause people to go and do more research and get smarter on the topic so that they can have confidence. The worst thing you can do is put on a trade and not have a lot of confidence in what you're doing or why you're doing it. So I think that all of those concerns are, are good concerns for people to have because it's going to help give them the conviction that they're going to need in the trade. Just to round up this discussion, I'm kind of on the same page of Neil's in the sense I have no, nothing against trading Bitcoin, particularly futures, because you know I trade futures. If anything, Bitcoin would be a good addition to my futures portfolio because it's definitely a, a you know diversifying market. So my concerns are more about the kind of relative costs and margin requirements that don't make it kind of an efficient addition to the portfolio at the moment rather than a, a specific bias. And I do like the kind of arbitrage trade that Moritz is talking about. It reminds me of kind of post-2008 when um, there was money lying on the table to do kind of cash CDS basis trades because nobody had the, the capital to do it. So if you were a hedge fund with the capital, you could just you know, help yourself. But I want to briefly change the topic, if that's okay, as this is probably my last question. One thing that was interesting about a couple of years ago is is I was noticing that, that when I was dropping my kids off at school, I had other parents coming up to me and saying, well, what do you think about Bitcoin? And so for me, that was that was a clear sign of an overheated market. <laughs> and it was at the time probably a clear sell signal. 
Um, but I'm not really seeing that now. And actually, uh, generally, what what we're seeing, I think, in 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 the sort of less informed end of the retail space, shall we say, you've got things like Robinhood, you've got people trading leveraged ETFs. So, what do you think about that? Is that having a big effect on the market? Um, is it is it something to be worried about? Are there people? There's been story, you know, anecdotal evidence of people losing very large amounts of money that doing leverage trading that they didn't really understand. Is this thing that, that concerns you? Because, you know, I think a couple of years ago, I was probably really concerned there were a lot of people piling into Bitcoin that didn't really know what they were doing. Now, I think less so. It's much it's much less in the news. And this is more in smart institutional money that's now thinking about it. So it's matured in that sense. But, you know, this is kind of the next scary bubble for me. What, what do you think? So... I would tell you in any other year, I would completely agree that when people were walking up and they have nothing to do with the markets and they're asking you about stock this and stock that or Bitcoin this, and it's it's usually the the best sign to to liquidate and run, right? 2020 seems to be the year where you do the exact opposite of whatever used to work. And I think one of the reasons that that's happening and why... I say that is because we're seeing something that is not something any of us have seen in our lifetime. And it's really the closeout of this 80-year debt cycle. And when you look at how markets perform at the end of these big credit events, and when you see a currency blow up, it's very counterintuitive to how you would normally position yourself. So go look at a chart of the stock market in Venezuela. You can name the country where they have hyperinflation of the currency. The currency completely debases. Look at those types of, of stock markets in nominal terms and see what it looks like, and the market goes up because they provide so much liquidity that everything bids. I don't know if because we're dealing with a currency that's a global currency, it's the reserve currency of the world, whether we're going to see that type of chart. I, I'm not convinced that we will or we won't. I'm just kind of standing by and saying they've got to print a whole lot more than what we've already seen. And we've already seen a lot. And I think that the printing that's to come is going to be of epic proportions, like way more than people can even fathom today. Because at the end of the day, you're having impairment on all these balance sheets. Like I just saw uh, Chesapeake had, what was it? $7 billion of impairment. So what a lot of people don't understand when businesses like that go bankrupt, it's literally like this $7 billion that used to be tradable, that used to be there in the market has just been completely removed, which is the same thing as the Fed stepping in and pulling $7 billion off the market. Well, this is just one company, right? This is one company that literally had $7 billion of units that vanished out of the system. So when you have that happen all around the world, you see events like we had back in March where why did gold go down? Why did Bitcoin? Well, they went down because the units in the system became impaired. The derivatives contracts that existed that are cash settled in USD, a lot of them, supply and demand numbers were completely different than what people thought. So guess what? It's, it's almost like the Fed is clawing all those units out of the system when you have all that kind of impairment. And so... What happens? It's a race to the dollar. Every single thing on the planet has to be sold in order to come up with dollars to adjudicate the differences of the trades. 
and the differences of opinions and the impairment that happened on the balance sheets. That's going to happen again. Like that that event that we saw in March is going to happen. It, it could happen this week for all we know. Okay. And when it does, it's a race to the dollar. The Fed has to step in and say, all right, we just had a trillion dollars worth of impairment on our system, on the dollar-based system. Now we have to step in and we have to print that and we have to get it back onto the market in order to keep everything sane. So trying to say that I think the market's going to go up, it's going to go down, it's all coming down to what the policymakers are going to decide and how much they're going to supply and then who they're going to supply it to. So far, the weapon of choice has been straight into the top, right into the bond market, then it trickles down into the equity market. And then if you had a bunch of money and you owned those equity positions and those bond positions, you made out like a bandit and you got richer and everybody else, relatively speaking, got poorer because they didn't get a piece of the pie. That's been the weapon of choice. If they continue to use that weapon of choice moving forward, they're going to continue to polarize the money into the hands of the few and it's going to create more social unrest. So when, when I look at your question and you have everyone running out there and buying Hertz, a company that's literally going bankrupt, and you got people on Robinhood bidding it, buying it like crazy, do I think those kind of things are going to continue to happen? Yep. Do I think that um, these zombie companies are going to continue to be kept alive? You bet I do. Do I see young kids trading on Robinhood, making tons of money doing that? Probably. Are they also going to lose a bunch of money and then tell you they made money? Of course. <laughs> so I think we're seeing a situation we've never seen in our lives, and it's going to, uh, it's only going to get crazier as the year goes on. I don't see this normalizing at all. If anything, I see it amplifying as the year goes on. What about you, Moritz? What's your thoughts? No more questions. I thought it was fascinating. <laughs> But I'm, uh, I'm all good with the Bitcoin discussion, so I'll leave it to you, Neil. <laughs> He's all Bitcoined out. <laughs> yeah, no, I've got a couple of thoughts. One thought, by the way, one just a quick comment to, to this thing about the Fed buying everything, and now obviously they're into to junk. I saw that this week, uh, I think it was either published or they did it this week. I mean, they bought a shitload of, sorry, pardon my French, <laughs> Big tobacco and big oil. I mean, so I'm just thinking ESG policies clearly don't apply to the Fed. It does seem to apply to everyone else. But anyway, it wouldn't be a real conversation with you, Preston, if we didn't have just one Warren Buffett question, I think, just to throw it in as a calming way to end our conversation. And again, I'm not an expert, but this is kind of what I've heard. And that is that someone like Buffett, who is as brilliant as he is, and no doubt about that, But I think he has actually underperformed the markets the last 19 years. And I'm just curious, and you know the concept and, and him better than anyone I know, how does he get away with that and people still love him? Because in our business, one month or two months or one year, God forbid, you underperform the market and, and the phone starts to ring. Well, the one thing that Buffett has that I think very few people in finance have is he has humility. You know, and I think a lot of people are attracted to that because it's so different than what you find in, in finance. You go to a shareholder meeting and, and he'll be the first person to tell you, yeah, I made a mistake there. I probably should have bought more of X, Y, and Z because it has way outperformed what I did buy, which was this. And so you just don't see that in a lot of, a lot of finance. And so I think a lot of people love that. And I think that people, he has this endearing quality and character to him. And even though he's underperforming, in my opinion, his performance over the last 10 years 
considering how much cash he's been sitting on throughout that period of time, I think has actually been pretty good considering he's been he's been running with blindfold on with how much cash he he has on his balance sheet because he's not employing so much capital that he could be employing and yet his company's performance is is pretty decent i want to say it's only off the s&p 500 over the last 10 years by a couple percent not not a lot maybe 10 percent or something like that over a 10-year period of time so his performance isn't too bad and i think that when you look at how little he's actually been allocating into the market because <laughs> he him and charlie definitely know something's up i think his performance has actually been kind of good when you look at it from that vantage point of how much he hasn't been investing and just just sorry to interrupt you there because i think that's a really interesting point it did surprise me that they didn't buy anything in fact they sold something during this last move down i mean 35 40% down move yet yeah. they didn't employ any capital what do you think they know we don't know i think he knows there's something up i'm looking up the performance here i'm i'm going to try to tell you what yeah, what no, it was fine. over the last 10 years but i think him and charlie and they've talked about it during the the shareholders meeting many a times where they're just like hey this is way different than anything we've seen in the past talking about this this cycle and because of that i think they're just they're acting very conservatively because at the end of the day, I think Warren's more concerned about not losing money for the shareholders than he is making money for the shareholders. He's playing very defensively. So here's the difference. So from the bottom of the 2009 cycle, Berkshire Hathaway compared to the S&P 500, let's see here, Berkshire Hathaway had a 267% return and the S&P 500 had a 287% return. So there's only a 20% difference, and that's over 11 years that there has only been a 20% difference between the S&P 500 and Berkshire Hathaway. I think that's pretty good considering how much he did not invest. I mean, he's sitting over $100 billion of liquidity on his balance sheet that he doesn't even invest, $100 billion. So I think that that's an interesting take. And I would tell you he was outperforming the market only till the start of this year. In fact, hold on. This is this is pretty fascinating. So Berkshire Hathaway was outperforming the S&P 500 since the bottom of the crash in, in, in 2009. He was outperforming the S&P 500 by 10% up till the start of this of 2020. Yeah. No, that is fascinating. Actually, it's a pretty good way to end our conversation today because the world we come from, trend following, we feel that we are pretty humble because we say up front, the philosophy is knowing what you don't know. So we have no clue and we make that clear what's going to happen tomorrow. Unfortunately, it doesn't quite work as well as it does for Buffett, but <laughs> we're still we're still hoping. Preston, we can't thank you enough for spending some time with us. We really do appreciate it, as I'm sure our listeners do as well. And, and by the way, of course, make sure you follow and subscribe to Preston's work on Twitter and, of course, the Investors Podcast. As you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a true global macro-driven world, and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Rob Moritz and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back with you as we continue our global macro mini-series. In the meantime, be well. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. 
We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute, and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.